I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So I think it was last month that I made reference to uh, a passage in the canon where the the Buddha compares the the Dharma, the Dhamma, to the ocean in terms of having a, a singular taste. You know, in the same way that the ocean has that single taste of, of saltiness, of salt, the Dhamma has the single taste of liberation or freedom. And I suppose that's a good thing to keep in mind for today because I've been thinking about how we think about the Dhamma, how we discuss the Dhamma, uh, how we try to articulate it with words, the various metaphors that we use, and how hard the Dhamma can be to grasp or understand experientially. And I suppose I've been thinking about this uh, because, you know, as the years go by, as I, as I continue to practice, as I continue to study, and as I continue to, to share the Dhamma and discuss it with others, it begins, or rather it becomes, uh, easier to, to understand, easier to practice, easier to follow. And it begins to make more sense, you know, logically as a consistent and uh, a system that just works all the way through. But after a while, it can seem to make so much sense that if you're in the position like me as, as someone who uh, has the opportunity to, to talk about the Dhamma quite a bit, it can feel like you're giving the, the same talk on a subject over and over again. The kind of thing that it's sometimes better to just do it than, than to talk about it. You know, I, I was talking to a friend recently and confiding in him that you know, over the years, as time has gone on, it's it's felt a bit like I'm I'm giving the the same talk over and over again on, on like how to tie your shoes, or how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, which is not to to minimize the the difficulty of of grasping the dhamma. Rather, it's showing examples of the kind of thing that it really only makes sense once you actually start doing it. And the peanut butter and jelly one is. You know, a better example than, than one might think at, at face value. Because, you know, those of us in the West who have grown up on PB&Js, you know, we, there was a point in our lives where we had to learn how to make that sandwich. It was probably one of the first sandwiches we ever made as kids. And it seems like a pretty straightforward thing. You know, two pieces of bread, some peanut butter, some jam. Pretty straightforward. Theoretically, you think about it for a bit and like, okay, I got it. And what we had to learn as children is how to do it in the right measure, like not too much peanut butter, not too much jam, and it should all make sense, be pretty easy. And as kids, we find that it's actually maybe a little more challenging than that. It takes a little more effort, and you end up, if you press too hard, you end up cutting through the bread with a knife, and then you make a mess, you put too much 
peanut butter, not enough jam, and then your mouth gets all gunked up with peanut butter. You put too much jam, it's too sweet. And I say all this recognizing that even today, I know people that make better peanut butter and jelly sandwiches than I do. How? My wife is one of those people. Every time I make a, a peanut butter jelly sandwich, I do the exact same thing. I put too much peanut butter. My wife makes the balance just right. And so recently I was thinking about this uh, peanut butter and jelly conundrum in terms of the, the Dhamma, in terms of the Dharma, and in terms of trying to share it with others, where after a while it just it make, it feels a lot like making sandwiches. It's, it's, an, it's an issue of repetitiveness. If we talk about the path as, as changing our habits and changing our mind in regard to habits, then it's just a thing that we do consistently every day, trying to be skillful. And so oftentimes when you're in the role of sharing it with people, the way I, I have had the opportunity to do so, it really helps when you have uh, questions from people in terms of, of what it is that they're struggling with, in terms of what they need help with, in terms of what they want to have clarified. And in this Zoom age that we've been on, there have been less questions all around, it seems, at least, uh, at least on my end. So it can sometimes be a bit uh, difficult to find what to say. And so I went out searching to see the kind of things that people are asking these days about the Dhamma. And I'm not sure if I made necessarily the, the right choice. I, I made an interesting choice. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, a monastic, from time to time will go on to uh, Reddit to see what the people are asking there and, you know, share a little bit of information in terms of like when he's giving a talk or when he's leading a retreat and things like that. And I got to see the kind of stuff that, that people are discussing about Buddhism on Reddit. And it's fascinating. It's interesting to see what people do on a website that's designed to talk about a thing rather than doing a thing and a place where one can discuss things, talk about them anonymously. And what I found, um, I suppose shouldn't have shocked me, shouldn't have surprised me. I think in some ways it dismayed me and that I was seeing a lot of arguments about how to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, metaphorically. You know, this, this straightforward thing that we're trying to do in terms of just being skillful, trying to do things that are for our long-term welfare and happiness, became the thing of hot debate. To continue with the metaphor, people were arguing about which kind of bread would be best. You know, some were like, well, white bread. Well, I think sourdough is best. Uh, have you tried the honey wheat for more? You know, talking about which jam would be best. And for the most part, there was some consistency. But, you know, the thing is, is people would get caught up a, a lot in their sectarian views and start debating and start arguing. And then you'd have people that came in with their own opinions that seemed to be far left field, you know, like maybe it should be jalapeno jelly, you know, and wow, that just seems to come out of nowhere. What an odd thing to say. What an odd choice. But then I'm not really in a position to judge. You know, when I was in Fullerton, I used to go to a farmer's market that sold a, a spicy almond butter, and I definitely use that for PB&Js, so maybe the guy, jalapeno guy is onto something. But, you know, in any case, I, I saw a lot of people debating the Dhamma more than I saw them practicing it. Now, to be fair, because of the way the website works, you just see you just see usernames and you see arguments. You don't know what these people are doing outside of that, but you see the way words are being used, and it's a lot of it's a lot of debate and a lot of argument. Now, 
if we move away from the Dhamma as a instructions on how to make a sandwich and look at it more as a, as a roadmap, as a guide, a map, period, then what we would see is people arguing about the efficacy of the map rather than actually using the map to get anywhere, which I think can be a big, a big hindrance to us uh, in general as people on the path is worrying too much about where the path leads all the way to the end before we even start actually practicing in terms of the map actually going down the path that the map shows us. Recently, I was I was reading a book that reminded me of the usefulness of maps because I don't, I don't know if uh, anyone has read this new book by by Roland Marullo. It just came out last year. It's uh, Driving Jesus to Little Rock. Yeah, I think that's what it's called. And uh, I had to laugh at this one point where the protagonist, the narrator of the story, is doing. The, he's on this road trip. He's driving from from Massachusetts to to Arkansas, and uh, he ends up having to, to pull over uh, the side of the road and go over his map to find where he was going. And he had to pull out his old Rand McNally. And I laughed because it unlocked a memory I had completely forgotten about, which was myself as a young driver, my father and my mother teaching me, but my father was the one that gave me the, the Thomas Guide, you know, the Thomas Guide by Rand McNally. Because this was before the rampant use of GPS right in our phones, so the way to know how to get anywhere was to have a map of the area you lived in. So I had the big Thomas Guide map of the Los Angeles area, and that's how I would figure out how to get around, how to find places. Now, I know some people end up driving uh, pretty young, you know, 15, 16. I didn't start driving until 18, which isn't a big difference, but... Um, I had to to learn how to drive at 18 and also learn how to get everywhere around Los Angeles, a big driving city, all at the same time. And at first, I wasn't good at either. I wasn't necessarily a good driver, and I wasn't good at getting around and reading maps. I got lost constantly because I was too wrapped up in the whole process of driving to begin with, and also the map was confusing. I don't know if you remember all the ways you'd have to find the map and turn to the proper page it was crazy. You couldn't do both. I wouldn't recommend doing both. But it was it was a difficult time. And I use this example of driving because especially for those of us who live in the Los Angeles area or even just Southern California in general, a lot of us are drivers. And so we had to go through that process of learning how to drive. And when you think about that, you know, when you first start driving, the whole process is is terrifying and there seems to be so many things that you have to remember you know you have to know how hard to, to press on the gas how hard to press on the brake but you also have to observe the mirrors look behind you in front of you all all different directions to this side that side you have to learn how to defensively drive and try to space yourself properly around cars that want to speed or go too slow or come out of nowhere blind spots the whole thing and so when you first start driving, there seems to be lots of things that you have to do. But after a while, and I don't think any of us paid attention to exactly when, for those of us who drive quite a bit, all of that became habit. It became a thing that you had to think about less, a thing that you just knew to do. It just became the way that you drive. And we, we all do this for those of us that drive. 
And in terms of having to follow a map, maybe at first we did have to follow that map pretty closely, really see which way we were going and see which I have to turn on this street and I have to go there, right? And sure enough, we'd try following the map and then that road would be closed, there'd be construction, we'd have to improvise, we'd have to try to figure it out. And after a while, we, be, we became familiar with the terrain enough, familiar enough where, where we were going that we didn't even need the map anymore. We just pretty much knew the direction we needed to go. You know, I, I was quite proud of myself at you know, 19, 20 years old, where no matter where I was in all of L.A. or Orange County, I could find my way back home. You know, no longer lost in that sense. Getting to my original destination was one thing, but getting back home was another. I knew the path home, wherever I was. I'd eventually find a street I recognized, I'd eventually find a freeway I recognized, and then there, off I'd go. And that's actually a pretty good way of thinking about how we develop this path anyway. You know, language can be so inexact, you know, and, and you'll often see that in the talks I give, I'll find four or five different words as a translation for a poly term. And it's not because English as a language is inexact. I would say that even in the language during the lifetime of the, of the Buddha was inexact, which is why oftentimes he would tell his students, tell his disciples that they had to keep striving in the path and keep walking down the path to get to the goal. And then that's when they would know you know, otherwise it was just concepts, ideas, things that motivated them, pushed them in the right direction. But they had to keep doing the work to see for themselves. And it's the same way that we follow these, these guides and these maps that we have. And so it can be disheartening for me when I see people spending too much time getting caught up in the map rather than what the map is used for, which is a guide. Which is a way of, of directing us to look around at our own lives, at the own the, the path that we're actually on, putting one foot in front of the other, or in this case, and in terms of driving, putting that, you know, the our foot on the pedal and pressing down. One of the other things I was thinking about was uh, something that doesn't actually come out of the Pali Canon, but uh, something that it comes out of the Mahayana Sutras. It, you know, it's the example of the uh, finger pointing to the to the moon. And it's not something that shows up in, in the Pali at all, that example, but it, it is a very good one that I enjoy reading. Uh, it shows up in at least two different sutras in the Mahayana canon. And the Zen tradition has taken it up quite a bit. And I've also seen people online take it up quite a bit. And they tend to change the phrasing of it so that the, the Buddha himself is the finger pointing to the moon and all that. Um, but in, in, the, in the Mahayana Sutras, it, the Buddha refers to the, to the Dharma as the finger pointing to the moon. With, uh, or rather, uh, the moon itself, and people uh, confuse the finger for the moon, that being the whole issue. What I find good about the way it's phrased in the Sutras itself is that how the Buddha talks about the, the moon as so bright. And I think that's an important way to think about this path that we're on, is that after a while, as we practice it, it becomes an obvious thing. It's no longer confusing to us because we just see that it's a good way to live. It's a good way to be. It's a good way to strive for our own happiness and the happiness of others. So when we're looking at that moon, I mean, 
We have to think about how the moon would have looked to people in a very rural society, a society that most of us don't live in. Most of us these days don't live so far removed from light pollution that when we look up, we just see the whole expanse of it all. But when you think about the moon, it's such an obvious thing. There it is. So I can't help but think that in those sutras where the Buddha is using that as an example, that here's this thing that like, look how obvious it is. I'm trying to point to it and you're busy looking at this finger. Well, look at this thing right there. And it's kind of, it's kind of the same way where we, we get busy looking at the maps, get busy talking about the discussions, get really philosophical, and, and we miss the, the whole endeavor in the first place which is to walk in a certain way, to, to think, to act, and speak in a certain way. In a way that, that is gentle, in a way that is, that is harmless, a way that's, that's good and, and true. And over time, we begin to see what the Buddha said. We're like, why, when we read all these different sutras, when we hear all these different teachings, we're getting at that same thing, that same taste. The Buddha time and time again tried to point to us how simple the path really is. And by simple, I don't mean easy. I just mean consistent, uncomplicated in terms of application. And we see how many times he pointed to the fact that he was carrying a handful of leaves, not trying to explain the whole forest, just this one thing, or distilling all of it to suffering and the end of suffering, again and again and again, pointing to this is the way it is, that one taste, the one taste of liberation. So when I see places like that, and it's not just Reddit, it's just the one that, that came up most recently in my own experience, people arguing about Dhamma, I wonder how much they've read the parts where the, the Buddha actually discouraged people arguing and philosophizing and debating the Dhamma. When we look at other people and we recognize whether or not they're practicing well, we're only simply supposed to look and go, ah, I'll make sure not to do that. We look at people as examples, not in a judgmental way, but in a judicious way, going, hmm, the way that person explained it, I think that's a little off the mark. How would I explain it myself? Or how would the Buddha explain it? Or how does a teacher I trust explain it? And think about it again in such a way that it makes sense to you. To go back to that finger pointing to the moon, I think it's helpful, but I think it's even more important to realize the ways that the Buddha is encouraging us to look at our own direct experience. You know, the problem with looking at the concept of the finger pointing to the moon, aside from it being this big bright thing that's obvious to see, it's also this thing that's very far and remote. It's this thing that's in, in space. Yes, it, it, it revolves around our planet, but it's this thing out there. I think one of the ways that we can talk about this, aside from the finger pointing to the moon, and I do think it's important, that example, we could also think of the Buddha doing something even more intimate in terms of pointing at each of us. Looking at each of us and pointing at us. And instead, we're looking at the tip of his finger when we should be looking at where he's pointing. Where he's directing us each time. And all the different suttas that we can read, he's pointing us in the same direction. To look at the world we've got inside.
in terms of, of thought, in terms of speech, in terms of action, looking inward and seeing what's happening in there. And we can see the simplicity of the Four Noble Truths. We can see the simplicity of skillful and unskillful action and effort and intention. We can see all the ways that everything that we have in all of these texts, in all of these commentaries, and all of these teachings, these, these audio teachings, visual teachings that are out there, always are a direction to look within. Which gets me back to the whole PB&J thing, you know? You can read instructions on how to make the PB&J, but you got to make it yourself. Otherwise, you don't have the PB&J. You don't have the goal. You don't have that thing to eat. You know, you don't have that kind of nourishment. You can watch videos on YouTube. I'm sure they exist. But we can take this to other examples. You might notice today that I've got a nice shaven head these days. It's something I've been wanting to do for a while, and I finally did it. And the funny thing is, is that, you know, growing up, my, my stepfather, he had a shaved head, you know, as far back as I can remember. Like he, you know, by the time I was about nine, ten, he was shaving his, his head pretty much every day. Uh, but I never shaved my head, so I had no idea how to do it. And, it. and for some people, it's such a straightforward thing. They've been shaving their heads their whole lives, especially my monastic friends, my monk and nun friends who have been shaving their heads ever since they were ordained. It's a thing they've done all the time. But I found myself in an interesting position. I had never shaved my own head. So I had to do what a lot of people do now when there's some skill that they've never acquired. I had to seek out information and learn. And the first thing I realized was just how much information there is about, about shaving heads out there. There's a lot of people out there, everyone, but a lot of men, especially those going bald, that have all this advice. And they all decide which is the right way, which is the exact way. You know, use shaving cream. No, don't ever use shaving cream. It's bad for your head. Use lotion instead. Ah, lotion's awful. You need to use hair conditioner. That's the way. And then they argue about which kind of razor is the right one. You gotta use this kind. No, it's gotta be that kind, and so on. You gotta shave only in the mornings, only every couple days, every once a week, whatever. And there's all this stuff. And you can watch it all, and you can listen to it all, and you can look at all the different maps. All the different maps, to bring it back to that idea of a map. But at some point, in terms of a guide, you have to pick one and try it out for yourself. And it'll either work or it won't. You have to test it out. And so that's what I've been doing in terms of learning how to shave my own head, is that I, I read up to a point, I watched videos up to a point, and then I just had to pick up the razor and give it a try. And through trial and error, I have found that some people were right and some people were wrong. I don't know if that's in a universal sense, they're right about it all the time, but I do know that in terms of my own head, in terms of shaving my head, some were right and some were wrong. Turns out for my head, uh, the conditioner is actually a good call. Uh, who knew? But in any case, that's often the way that, that we approach these traditions in terms of Buddhism. Because one of the things I saw when I was looking at these online forums, Reddit being one of them, is that you have people who come in who have never studied Buddhism in their entire lives. And so they, they come in and they ask, like, well, which is the best tradition to practice? I've been told there's several traditions. Then they all start mobbing each other and fighting over which one's the correct one and being pretty unskillful about it in terms of the kind of vitriol they have towards each other. 
And the fact of the matter is, you know, in terms, in terms of following a map, you do have to pick one and then try it out and see how it works. In my own life experience, I did the same thing in terms of Buddhism. You know, I didn't start out following the Theravada tradition. I started out kind of doing all sorts of stuff. I really liked Zen at first, and then things changed. I found something that when I put to practice, I started to see results and continue to see results today. And it doesn't mean that the path I'm following is the best one for everyone. It just, when I look at my own actions, whether they be thoughts, whether they be words, whether they be bodily action, I see the results. To take the map analogy again, I, I finally went out there, went on the trail and realized that, ah, this does, it is leading in the direction I want to go. And I'm finding people that have worked their way further up the trail and they're able to point out where the, where the little holes are and where the roots are and where I might trip and where I might fall, where I might struggle. Points of rest along the way where I can be nourished and inspired and invigorated to keep going, motivated to keep going. And that's the way it's been. That's the way that I've, I've taken these maps and made them something that I put into practice, I put to use. Maps are meant to use. They're, just not, they're not meant to be speculated and looked over and, and argued about. And it's the same thing with, with, the, with the Dhamma. That we're encouraged to practice together, but also practice in our own way, looking inside. In a lot of ways, we internalize the Dhamma and make it something that works for us. And that doesn't mean that we, we deviate from tradition. It doesn't mean that we deviate from the map. What it does mean is that the map is incomplete because that's how language works. Because eventually, as we keep going, we get to something ineffable, hard to describe, and the words begin breaking away. As we get more and more refined states of meditation, as we, our defilements fall away and our actions become more pure, we get closer to something that is completely undefined. When the Buddha talks about Nibbana, he talks about something that can't be said to be one thing or the other. And we come to something that, that language fails to grasp. And then we really are in the realm of our own experience, our own measure of what we find. You'll notice that when people finally do attain the bliss of Nibbana, you know, with the way it's it's described in the in the suttas, there's not just the the experience of release. There is the knowledge released that comes with it, which means that once we get to the destination, we know. No one else has to confirm it. No one has to to say it for us. No map has to describe the location for us. We simply exist in it and know. That's what the Buddha would refer to as real independence. Is the way that we find are truly free free of everything, including the raft that got us to the further shore. That's the, that's the, the goal we're, we're working toward. Whatever model, instruction, or map we're using, that's, as Buddhists, what we strive for, that kind of liberation. And it's one defined by our practice, our innovation, our adaptation, because the map doesn't do all the work for us. We can't look at the map and then get to the destination. We have to do the work. We have to do the training, the cultivation, the development. And we find, at least I have found, that it becomes enjoyable. As you, as you further de develop and as it becomes a, a, a habit, a way of being, a way of life, just the direction you're walking in, you know, it becomes a nice stroll rather than a, than a trek or, or a climb. 
and you find ways of resting along the way and, and uh, sharing that rest with others to help encourage them. One of the, the funny things I find in, in the suttas is how much of the time the Buddha felt was, was worth instructing and how much he felt was worth doing other things. You'll notice that the way the Buddha talks about his lessons, he says, okay, there's instruction, but then there's also arousing of wholesome desire, inspiration, encouragement. He's doing a lot of things of building people up, letting them know that they can do this as well, that what he attained, others can attain through their own efforts. And so it becomes this thing where we're in the business, essentially, of motivating each other, inspiring each other to help each other along on the path, which is the opposite of the kind of, of arguing about the path that I've seen online recently. So that, that's what I wanted to, to share with you all today, is this, this way of, of keeping what we have written down and what we share orally with each other in mind. How this, this finger pointing at the moon, we might interpret as another way, where you know, the moon itself is, yes, the, the, the Dhamma and the truth, but it's also ourselves in terms of the world that we have inside, our, our inner world of, of actions and intentions, of, of thought, word, and, and, and bodily action. We, we see there that, that we have this finger pointing at ourselves, pointing us inward to, to what we do and how we do it. So I, I think I'll, I'll end the talk there, and I hope that it, it does the work of inspiring and, and, and encouraging. That was the intent with which I shared it. Thank you for listening.